0: What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at 9, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood.
2: And good morning, Lowcountry. Welcome back for another edition of Beyond the Business, heard here on 94.3 WSC and simulcast on iHeartRadio. Radio. It's presented by the College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work. They're ready to make an impact, and hopefully we are making an impact week in and week out by sharing these great stories of entrepreneurs, leadership, and success in and around the Lowcountry. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Cox, here this morning with the lovely and talented Leslie Haywood coming to you again remotely um, from West Ashley. Good morning.
3: Yes, all the way from West Ashley. Thank you way so much, How, Low Country. I know, there. I'm way over there from Mount Pleasant to West Ashley. We got all places covered. Um, I appreciate you listeners spending your morning with us and make sure and continue the fun beyond Saturday morning and check out our Facebook page at Beyond the Business or talk to us on Twitter at
2: BTBCHS. And another great show last week, a, a little different one out of the box, which we'd love to throw in. From time to time, Mr. Wood Marchant, who's the Director of Collegiate Recovery over at the College of Charleston, came on with us and uh, actually is back with us again. So uh, first of all, welcome back, Wood. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh,
3: not letting us run you off with hard questions and things. But of course, I feel like you're used to dealing with difficult situations on a daily basis.
1: Well, the good part's on the way. So I look forward to this (laughs) part of the story.
2: So, Leslie, let's give our listeners a little snippet in case somebody missed, a show, missed the show last week. Uh, what was a key takeaway for you?
3: Um, well, I think, as, as usual, I love how the first segment of our shows really tie. You can almost find the thread every single time from the upbringing and the childhood to what the are, they are doing today. And last week was no no different, um, where the things that influence you as a young adult, even if you don't really know that they're influencing you, have an effect on what you do later on in life. And for those of you that missed last week, it was a very um, powerful and um, raw and inspirational um, uh, session make sure and go to coastalwm.com and listen to that first part of the the podcast
2: Yeah, and you can also check it out on iTunes or Spotify. Just simply type in Beyond the Business. And I agree with you, Leslie. What a a testament to, you know, this show is not just about entrepreneurship or leadership, right? This is about the human spirit and mankind and just what we go through as individuals in life and the journey of life. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, Wood, you, I think, eloquently laid out that journey for you and the experiences along the way with with brutal honesty of how the twists and turns have shaped and formed who you are today. And at the end of the at the End of the day, we all are shaped and formed by these experiences in life, and so thank you know, for sharing. We're really looking wait forward to see to how this it part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> I
3: know this is we're getting.
2: So to the one good of the stuff. things uh, we we did jump around a little bit last week. So I want to go back and talk, what a minute about um, when you came out of college. You end up getting your master's in social work, and I know your first job and and really the field was as a social worker. Let's talk a little bit how this role has unfolded for you, and go back to those days when you were working uh, with patients over you know from Musc.
1: I'm going to go back a little farther than that. So, still trying to find the path after college. Uh, I went to a graduate school in advertising down in Atlanta called the Portfolio Center. And they had five disciplines there. There was copywriting, which I was there for, photography, graphic design, illustration, and being a creative director. Um, And so, I was going to go down and be an ad man. And two-year program, uh, I took all my problems with me. Uh, I thought leaving Charleston to go to this graduate school, I'd be able to start walking a straighter path, be more career-focused. But wherever you go, there you are. So, I found the same type (laughs) of people in Atlanta uh, that I was spending time with in Charleston. And you know, for me, I'm honest about this. My drug of choice was marijuana. I was a daily pot smoker for years. And if if you do that for very long at all, you're going to have a depression problem. And so... I had been going to therapists for years and psychiatrists and trying to get the newest antidepressant du jour, and that would help a little bit. and that's what happened when I moved to Atlanta. I had gotten on a new antidepressant, but the psychiatrist that was prescribing it knew my problem more than I did. Um, I was just a little bit honest with her, and she said, "Listen, I'm not going to keep prescribing this unless you find a support group in Atlanta to continue this change that you're starting to try and make." Um, and I knew exactly what she meant, and. I moved into this neighborhood in Virginia Highlands, and I knew there was a support group meeting going on at a church about five houses away from where I was. And I didn't go, I just wasn't ready. Um, And so, you know, a year of trying to write headlines stoned um, didn't (laughs) work out so well. I had some brilliant Mm -hmm. classmates who were just out of college and hungry for, you know, the ad life. And I was a 31 year old guy trying to figure it out. Um, And so, it, it's uncanny how it happens when you're ready to get sober, but people started showing up at the right time. I'd, I'd shared with some friends that I knew I had a problem, but I didn't know where to go for help, um, because no one was really talking about rehab back in those days. This, again, this was the early '90s. Yeah, I'd known a couple of people that had gone, um, but I, I just didn't know how to ask for that help. Um, but in saying those things to to friends, the, the teacher started to appear. Um, I remember a friend arranged for me to ride with a sober guy when we were going on a road trip. And so this guy had me for two hours kind of talking about when he got sober in Chapel Hill and Gardner G. I appreciate that story to this day. And then there was a girl from Charleston that came through town that had gotten sober at Fenwick Hall here in Charleston years ago, uh, and she'd been in and out of recovery. She came one weekend uh, with another good friend and said, we ought to do something about this. We ought to go to a meeting. And so, it, it was just time. And I and I finally found a therapist I was telling the truth to. And uh, she had a similar issue with marijuana, and she told me where she went for support. So, these mutual support groups. Started helping me uh, because I was ready. I just couldn't keep it up anymore. And and when I knew I was ready, was when I couldn't look in the mirror when I was brushing my teeth or brushing hair, mm. for that matter. I couldn't meet my own gaze in the mirror. And you gotta look in the damn mirror often during a day. You don't have to, but if you want to look decently, and and. That was telling for me. I'd even move my toothbrush into the shower and brushing your teeth with soap on it isn't a great way to start the day. So, it was kind of like- it
3: It was literally, you could not look yourself in the mirror.
1: Truly, truly. And so, you know, the first thing they tell you to do when you get sober or trying to get sober is change playmates and playgrounds. And I was in graduate school. And I had built this friend group at the school where I was, um, and I kind of had to say, I can't hang out with you guys anymore. And I had to be humble and ask to be friends with this new group of students on campus who I kind of already deemed not cool enough, uh, but they were welcoming and friendly and and just normal, you know? Um I realized there were people that didn't drink and do drugs all the time that were uh, focused on school and focused on the next right step, and so these mutual support groups helped me. And you know, it was it was two years in Atlanta after I graduated and uh, doing some freelance writing there that I kind of knew I needed to come back to Charleston, but was scared to death. Um, It was something internal. It was like, if this is going to stick, if recovery is going to stick, if sobriety is going to be a long-term choice, I got to try it out in Charleston. Oh, right. Yeah, I was just under two years sober when I moved back, and I couldn't have moved back a day sooner. Um, And these men that helped me on my recovery path told me what I was going to do when I went back to Charleston. They told me that ponytail dick was going to work with me and that you're going to go to this support group meeting in this part of Mount Pleasant every day at noon. And the greatest thing that I did when I was getting sober was say yes, because everything in your body wants to say no, right? I mean, no one wants to end up in those meetings and in those church basements. Um, But my best thinking got me to those rooms. And so, just, just recognizing that if I say if I said yes that I was getting better, and I was getting the help I needed, really started helping me find that path I've been looking for for so long. I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but after I got sober, I realized I really don't like writing. Um, it's <laughs> such a chore, and at that point, my brain wasn't working that great anyway. Um, after you know a number of years being in the fog of smoke, uh, and so I kind of started looking for the next step, and I thought teaching schools. So and when I moved back to Charleston, uh, I got substitute teaching jobs at Charleston Day School, a little private school downtown. That became a family for me, um, and really neat time in my life. I was living on my own. Uh, I was making new friends in Charleston and I was kind of trying to leave some of those old friends behind to tell you the truth who were still here. Um, and I'll just keep going. Teaching helped me realize that I was much better with students one-on-one than 30 on one. Um, Mm -hmm. the big classroom was a little overwhelming and, and I, i communicated better on smaller groups and with individuals. And so, a friend suggested I go get my master's in social work and become a school psychiatrist or a school uh, counselor, and I thought that was a great idea. Um, And so, I did the three-year master's in social work program. As on a part-time basis up at University of South Carolina, so at the time I would go to the library down on Calhoun Street and watch a closed-circuit TV, uh, which showed the classroom in Columbia. And so this was you know pre-internet and the ease of which people can do online school these days. I had a little little small desk with a TV in front of it at the library and a phone in the little desk area and if I had a question I'd pick up the phone and dial into the class
3: a remote learning 1990 something style yeah. right? right oh my gosh yeah.
1: so um and met so many people in in the masters of Social work problem and I was really open about my recovery at that point and always have been and so I started learning that that could help others and that you know that I was probably the only sober person that anyone in my friend group knew. And as we were getting older, more and more people would call or ask me for coffee or, you know, would call about my mom and dad are struggling or, you know, my kids are starting to struggle. And I just saw that I was a valuable resource, because not a whole lot of people knew about how to get sober. I, th- I think there's more discussion openly about that these days, and social media can lead you to, to find recovery, uh, in a way, um, but I always say, you can't do it by yourself, because every addict and alcoholic I know that has struggled has earnestly, that morning they woke up, said, I can't do this anymore, I- I- I've got to stop, and they meant that with every fiber of their being, but it usually doesn't last unless you're doing it with others. Um, yeah. and, and doing it alone is, it's so difficult. I always say, why would you do it alone? You've got a room full of people that know your story, that know you, that have worse stories that are ready to walk beside you and help you along the way. And so being somebody that liked those mutual support group meetings and also, um, uh, was smart enough to keep saying yes it it just kept leading me and and you know different opportunities presented themselves what an incredible journey.
2: And by the way, that journey is that of Mr. Wood Marchant, the Director of Collegiate Recovery over at the College of Charleston. And, Wood, let's talk about, as as we're cruising through this segment here, kind of the, the evolution of this program at the College of Charleston and, in general, in campuses around the country. Sure. Um, I, this may not be an issue that a lot of people think about,
1: um, that it's at the level and scale that it is. Well, Correct, and and we see we've seen the evolution of collegiate recovery as we've seen the opioid epidemic occur over the last ten to fifteen years, um, with the strength of the the opiate pills, with the heroin, um, with the Xanax and the clonopin that is overprescribed these days, with the ease in which those substances are made uh, with materials from the dark web. Um, you know you combine those powerful drugs with the powerful marijuana of today which is i don't know how many times more potent than the stuff i used to smoke back in the 80s but um and with alcohol and this shot culture we see i mean i think our generation drank differently this this group goes out to get hammered and to and and i've heard this term you know to get blacked like, the goal is to black out and forget your tough life? I mean, I, I, it just doesn't compute to me, but I, I hear I hear on this campus and others, and with young people, you know, what the party culture is these days, and it's dangerous. And so, all that combined, uh, young people are hitting their bottom a whole lot quicker. Um, You know, if you just drank for years, sometimes you'd stumble into those mutual support group meetings or a therapist's office in your 60s. Now you've got kids looking for help in their teens, and because they could continue to have consequences when they used. And so, you know, as we say, the consequences aren't just bad luck, Um, somebody's trying to get your attention. And so, there's more help available to young people, to families, and this transferred into collegiate recovery. The the first big programs started in cities that had big treatment centers that treated young people. So, one of the more well-known collegiate recovery programs is the Texas Tech. They also have a, a treatment center down there called The Ranch at Dove Tree, And so, when folks would go for treatment and get sober, um, they'd stick around in sober living homes and want to go back to school. And so, Texas Tech helped develop a program uh, that would shepherd these students through college life. And state and federal funding soon followed um, because the government was earmarking options for treatment for folks uh, with opioid use disorder. And so, you know, when these students that had the idea to start the program at the College of Charleston got in front of the right people, and listen, none of that was coincidental. I can promise you how the doors just kept opening. Um, The college was ready to say yes to a program like this, but they just didn't have the funding in their budget. Meanwhile, I'm sitting over at MUSC, where I'm working as a treatment provider at the Center for Drug and Alcohol Programs, um, going, this collegiate recovery thing sounds so cool. And two of the students that were helping do the planning, the plotting, and eventually the fundraising for this program, they came through the program where I worked at MUSC. I was one of their counselors. And so I was staying in touch with them. I didn't know anything about collegiate recovery. But the college said, we like this idea, we just don't have the funding. And they said, what if we go out and raise the money ourselves? The college said, please do. And I don't want to mention the exact dollar amount these guys raised in six months, but it would knock your socks off, because they were super bold. They talked to their friends who were sober, their parents. They talked to parents that had lost kids to addiction which was a tough thing to do, and they got some door slammed in their faces, but they also got a bunch of hugs, a bunch of support, a bunch of love, and a bunch of big checks. And so, to be honest, when I was hired, this program was in place. The, the bones, the foundation was set, and they, all, they already knew two things that they needed that made a successful program. One was a dedicated space for the students. That they can have as their own i mean much like a fraternity house or sorority house but a sober one and we don't have a house but we had a great big conference room and we've moved into our second space now which is uh a series of offices with one big meeting space where we have our recovery meetings. Um, but also what makes collegiate recovery programs work is a dedicated staff person. Not somebody who worked in the counseling center that was working part-time helping start a program, but somebody who was doing that as a full-time job. And uh, to be honest, four, four years into this, I don't know what I'm doing. But. <laughs> As long as I keep listening to the students, I get a pretty good idea of what they need and what they're asking for. And I'm in a, I was on a group call this morning um, with directors from all over the southeast. So there were 12 of us talking about how to do virtual programming for our students. We are these days now that students are back on campus, able to have up to five at a time in our space for a virtual, or for a meeting, but then we also Zoom in the people that aren't on campus. And so, usually our support group meetings are, you know, anywhere from five to 15. Um, We've got 16 students in recovery this semester, and we've been right around that number for the last three years. And it's neat to see these kids. I mean, you can hear the excitement when I talk about it. They, I, I get to see people's, lives completely change. I mean, you know, from failing out of school to dean's list in a year, you know? And and it's not just our program. I mean, I'm, our program is one tool in the toolkit that these kids— kids use to further their recovery. Um, but Charleston has it, and most port cities have great recovery. And I always wondered about that. I guess people like to drink near the water. Right, of-
3: the sailors. I mean, as a tale as old as time, the pirates and the, the rum and the sailors, and yeah, well, the I don't of- know what it is about the water.
1: Yeah, well, a whole lot of them end up getting sober. I mean, you go to any port city on the east coast or west coast, they have great recovery, and we're no different. And we have great young people recovery. Um, I struggled early on with hosting my social events. I thought I had to have plans for these students every weekend to keep them busy. And when I'd get low attendance, I'd get my feelings hurt a little bit. But there was a better party with other sober kids on Folly Beach, or they were all going bowling. And so, I'm lucky in that this community of recovering young people um, is so vast and they're so close. Um, it's just a, it's like a big old happy recovering family, and I'm honored to be a part of it. So, Wood, from
2: from your experience, um, again, I think you know thinking about this large scale around campuses around our country is probably not at the forefront of most people's mind. But what about the parents, right? Uh, do, you, right. do you find that the parents are, are knowledgeable that this is going on with their children, that they're completely dumbfounded and, and you know, thrown off their feet when it comes to to head? Kind of what's the parent's role that you see in this whole process?
3: Sure. Yes, as a parent so, of
1: two teenage girls. So, yes. Right. right. It starts out with me. Um for me with a phone call, usually a parent calling and saying, I read about your program online. Um, My son or daughter needs to be in your program. And I'll say, well, tell me a little bit about them. And it usually starts with some academic trouble, um, possibly some trouble with my boss, the Dean of Students, Dr. Jerry Cabot, who is such a helper on this campus. and, you know, consequences, DUIs, uh, minors in possession, drug charges, you know, that get a parent's attention, and then they start looking for help. And so, I always suggest to those parents, you know, send your kid over for a talk. Uh, tell them to text me, because they're not going to call or email, but they text me on my school cell, cell phone, and, uh, you know, i have a one-time meeting. And 90 90- These kids aren't ready to get sober. Mm -hmm. I know I'm planting seeds. Um, I really do. And I get referrals from other offices on campus, from student health services, from the counseling center, from academic advisors. Um, The support with which we've received on this campus, I I cannot say enough about my colleagues and coworkers. Um, This is a feel-good program. And, you know, we all know what happens in college. And we all knew somebody in college that took it a little too far. And so, to have a program like this that, you know, we have had students get sober during the course of a semester, but most of our students come to us already in recovery, haven't been to a rehab or a few rehabs. And, you know, the average age of my students is probably about 24 this semester, maybe a little higher with that 40-year-old. But they've had, I think, that 40-year-old that he'd been to 13 colleges, and we're the 14, he's coming back to the college, so 13 still, but, you know, having trouble completing your duties as a student because of your addiction, and then leaving that school. And so, our admissions office, we've gone in and spoken to them and said, you hey, pay attention to a a transcript that may look wrecked, but in their personal statement, they talk about finding a new path. Some come out claim plainly and clearly and say, hey, I found recovery. And some people kind of talk in code about it. I'm on a new path. I've made some new choices. Um, And so, they will flag those uh, applications and get in touch with me and I'll talk to the students and find out if there's somebody in recovery. And, you know, the school has been great about forgiving some, not forgiving, but allowing some of these folks with checkered academic paths into the school because they know there's a program that's going to support them, and what happens is that my students, after they get sober, they're some of our leaders on campus. Their GPAs are higher than the average student body, and then um, also they're going to graduate. So, you know, it, it's it's a good business model for colleges to have students who are in recovery on campus.
3: Very good. Now, how can people get a hold of you if they need you or they think sure. they need you? I'm,
1: I'm going to give my school cell phone, which I've got with <laughs> me all the time. It's uh, 843-693-5975. And texting is the best way to get me, six nine three five nine seven five. 5975 And uh, I just calmly invite students over to check our space out. And usually what I'm trying to do is introduce them to people that look like them. You know, just somebody that's got their same story who might be in a class with them who happens to be sober these days. So, this mutual support is key. That's amazing. Wood Marchant, Director of Collegiate Recovery at the College of
2: Charleston. Wood, first of all, just uh, I would say thank you. Uh, We are all certainly uh, in a debt of gratitude to you for the work that you're doing, the lives that you're changing, and the impact that you're having on, on the campus there at the College of Charleston. And I know around the country, there's others in that same role having that same impact. And this is the future of our country, these these young kids that are coming through college, and you're helping them overcome some major obstacles. So great work out there. Keep it up. And thank you for sharing your story here on Beyond the Business.
1: Thank you. I- So, appreciate the opportunity. And thank Dean Allen Chow and our School of Business for recommending that I come talk to you. Thank you. Well, there was a reason he recommended, and certainly you did not disappoint.
2: So, thanks for the great story. Again, you've been listening to Beyond the Business, presented by the College of Charleston School of Business and Coastal Wealth Management. And we look forward, Low Country, to having you back to next Saturday morning for more stories of entrepreneur and leadership. And until then... Have a blessed
0: week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio 94.3 WSC. The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide, With nine undergraduate majors, ten minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy, the College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.